All right, Debutai, welcome. <clears throat> so we uh, continue the uh, study of the Tehillim, and our uh, lessons bring us to chapter 84. It's Perek Pedalid. Lamnaseya ala gitit korach mizmor. So again, this is a, uh, a chapter that is connected to the children of Korah. Now this is a very well-known chapter for those that pray Minha every day. Actually, uh, I know a lot of the ladies, they start Minha from either Ashrei or the Amidah, or they just skip it totally, and they just pray Shaharit. But the men... When they start the prayer of Minha, they start with this prayer, And the question is, why? There's nothing in this chapter, per se, that really talks about the prayer of Minha. So why would we start the uh, tefillah with it? So I saw brought down uh, in a sefer uh, on Tehidim. The book is called uh, 84. It was written by one of the rabbis of Syria. And he says that the hardest tefillah for a businessman to pray is minha. For the simple reason, shaharit could always pray before you go to work. And arbit could always pray when you come home from work. But minha is smack in the middle of the day, especially in the winter months like we are now. Minha is over at 4.30. So you really have to stop what you're doing and uh, try to pray, and if possible, try to pray with a minyan. And again, once you're at work, you're in motion. And therefore there's phone calls, and there's emails, and you're involved, and you usually would have to interrupt something you're doing, and make a conscious effort to stop the pray minha. Something that you would not have to do for sharit and arbit. And of course, the drive always to, uh, to pray minha is to say to yourself, uh, I'm not going to lose money if I interrupt my business to pray. Obviously, if I pray, Hashem's going to not hold it against me. Hashem's going to uh, uh, to give me beracha. And uh, we're reminded by a famous story of a man called Korah. Korah was a very wealthy man, and uh, he used his wealth for the bad. He used it to influence his friends and his cohorts to go against Moshe Rabbeinu, and ultimately the wealth of Korah uh, did him in, and at the end he had no more wealth, because him and all his assets got swallowed underneath the ground. So therefore you see that a person could have wealth one day, and the next day lose it, and the wealth could be the cause of his downfall. So there's no better way to start the prayer of Minha by saying, So we mention the episode of Korah, which would put the businessman in perspective that although it's important to make money, but ultimately Hashem runs the world. Look what happened to Korah. He had all that money and he lost everything because he didn't use it the right way. And not praying minha would be using your blessings for the wrong way. You're using your wealth in order to forget God instead of to remember Him. And therefore, that would be a good way to start the tefillah of minha. I thought that was a nice, a nice lemis. Now, uh, we read the Second pasuk, Mayididot Mishkenotecha Adonai Sevaot. Okay. Now, the, um, the chapter over here is talking about Mishkenotecha. Mishkenotecha is God's dwellings. Mishkan is a dwelling. It could be a, a specific reference to the Beta Mikdash that David Melech did not build. But in this chapter, he's going to talk about his cravings and his desires in order to build the Beit HaMikdash. Although the Beit HaMikdash was ultimately built by Shilomo, David HaMelech talks about his uh, anticipation and his desire to build the Beit HaMikdash. And the Torah or the Tehidim uses the word Mayididot Mishkenotech. And the Gemara learns from over here in Menachot on page 53. I'm quoting the Gemara. Now this is going to sound like a riddle. Let me read the whole uh, riddle first, and then I will explain it to you. Yavo yedid ben yedid v'yibne yedid liyedid bechelkoshel yedid v'yitkaperu bo yedidim. 
It's like a Jewish version of uh, Peter Piper. But over here, the key word over here is being Yedid. Now, a Yedid is a friend. So now the Gemara explains that anybody that had any association with the building of the Beit HaMikdash automatically is called a friend of God. Is considered a, 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 a Yedid. He's considered a beloved one. So the Gemara is explained like this. Yavo Yedid, let the Yedid come in. Who's that? Zeh Shilomo HaMelech. Because Shilomo HaMelech had many names. One of the names of Shilomo was called Yedidya. And why was he called Yedidya? Friend of God. Because he was the one that actually built the temple. Ben Yedid, the son of Yedid, Ze Avraham. Because Avraham, we see also, was called the beloved one and friend of God. Yedid, and let him build the Yedid, which is the Beit HaMikdash. And how do we know the Beit HaMikdash is called Yedid from this pasuk? You see that the Mishkan, the place where Hashem rests his presence, is called Yedidot. And that's referring to the Beit HaMikdash. And it will be built in the city of Yerushalayim, which is also called Yedidya, as the pasuk is Mayidot. So therefore, from this pasuk we see that the Beit HaMikdash and those that associate with it have a special standing uh, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Fine. So therefore, How beloved and how special are your resting places. I remind you that the reason why Hashem created the world is in order that He should have a resting place for a Shekhinah. The intention of God is not to keep His presence in heaven. Nobody benefits if the presence of God is in heaven. The purpose is to bring the presence of God on earth. Now, what happened was that originally when Adam Arishon was created, the Shekhinah was with him in Gan Eden. That was the purpose. Unfortunately, he ate from the tree, and as a result, the Shekhinah started to uh, not descend, but ascend back up to the heavens. It would take seven generations from Avraham to Moshe in order to bring the Shekhinah back down. You had Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yaakov's son was uh, 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 Levi. Levi had a son called Kehat. Kehat had a son called Amram. Amram had a son called Moshe. And Moshe Rabbeinu was able to go to Har Sinai and bring the Shekhinah down, like it says, Vayered Hashem al So that took seven generations to bring it down. I am sorry to tell you that after the sin of the Egil, which happened shortly after that, the Shekhinah went back up. The fix for that would be the building of the first Mishkan in the desert. The first Mishkan will be, again, a way for God to have a presence on earth. I must say also, the Mishkan is not the optimum. Before the Mishkan, the presence of God was everywhere in the camp. After the Chet Egel, now the presence of God is limited to a certain location, which means before the sin of the Egel, the Shekhinah's presence and concentration is everywhere. You felt the energy throughout the camp. After the sin of the Egel, now God says, I can't be in the whole camp. There'll be a, uh, a hermetically sealed environment called the Mishkan, and that's where my presence is going to be. And that's what the Pasuk says, How pleasurable, how beloved is the Mishkinotecha, the resting houses of Hashem Sevaot. And now David is talking about his feelings. The word nechsefa. Anybody know what nechsefa means? So that she tells us. Nechmeda. Nechmeda means, uh, to, yes, pleasant, very good, or to crave. Nechsefa. Uh, Anybody know what the root word? Kesef. Kesef is money. You know why they call kesef kesef? Because everybody craves it. Well, most people crave it. So therefore, kesef melashon nechsefa, that people Desire it. David wasn't desiring money, but nechseva vegam kaleta. Kaleta, that she says, nitaveta. Nitaveta means he was desirous. Kemo vatechal David amelech latzetet avshalom. And what is he desiring and craving? So the pasuk says, lehatzrot Hashem. Lehatzrot Hashem ki harevu. So that she's learning that David saw a futuristic situation that the temple is going to be destroyed. So therefore he was desiring for the third Beit HaMikdash to be 
rebuilt. And we know that the third temple is going to be rebuilt, uh, um, is going to be built uh, uh, and never, never destroyed. Now, it's important to know exactly uh, David's feelings over here. <clears throat> How should I tell this to you? David Amelech ultimately did not build the Beit HaMikdash. He prepared to build it, but he was told by God uh, that your son is going to build the Beit HaMikdash. David bought the property, David prepared the raw materials, he actually made the plans, and that's all he wanted to. Like it says the Pesach, all I desire and crave all day long is, my heart and my flesh are singing El El Hai to the living God. I pray for it all day. So why didn't he get a chance to build it? So actually there's a very deep concept over here. Anytime a person does a mitzvah, especially on the uh, level of building the Beit HaMikdash, it must be done 100% L'Shem Shamayim. And don't kid yourself, it's not easy to do things 100% with the pure intent. Uh, people may start off with good intent, but then uh, the Yetzirah gets involved and they have personal uh, benefit or agenda, or they do it for glory, or they do it for other, other personal reasons. In order for the Beit HaMikdash to be done perfect, Bore Olam used King David's desire, which was perfect. Had David continued to build it, that desire might have become tainted, as if David would say, look, I built it, I did it. And that would have been compromised. So David, God said from David, what I need from you is your kabana. What I need from Shilomor is to actually build it and I will combine David's good intent, which was pure, and he was only the same because he never got to do it. So he can never say, look what I did, what did you do? All you did is desire it and want it and will it, which God knows exactly the thoughts of man. So God took the goodwill of King David which is from his heart, and God took the actual building of Shilomor and put them together, and in combination, you would have a structure that was built, Leshem Shamayim. If I had to say it in Kabbalistic way, David, Shilomor built the edifice, but David put the Neshama into the edifice. The soul of the Beit HaMikdash comes from the Bi'ubsari, from the, from the heart, that's something from the inside. Shalom was the goof of the Beit HaMikdash and David is considered the Neshama. Where does the Neshama come from? From the, from the intent, from the country. And that's why it's so important whenever we do a mitzvah to have kavana. Uh, the biggest thing that we have going for us is that we are religious. And the worst thing that we have going for us is that we are religious. What do I mean to say? Because we're religious, we fall into patterns and habits. And therefore, a lot of the mitzvot that we do are done habitual, routinely. They're done robotically. And therefore, they're not done with, with kabbalah. You know, do something the first time in your life, you're all excited. You ever see a Baal Teshuvah when he does a mitzvah? Since he wasn't accustomed to doing these mitzvot, everything is a surprise, everything's exciting, everything is new, everything is fresh. Take an old timer like us who do the mitzvot, so, uh, it's, it's lagging, you know, it's carrying a burden, you're doing it, you get, get it done, there's another mitzvah. It's almost as if we could do it in our sleep. And it's not a compliment to say you could do the mitzvah in your sleep. So therefore, the Benin Shai writes that there's two parts of the mitzvah. There's the physical part of the mitzvah, meaning the actual uh, uh, physical part to get it done. But then there's the more important part of the mitzvah, which is the kabbalah. And the Gemara says, as an example, Tefillah belo kavana keguf belo neshama. That a prayer without kavana is like a body without a soul. So anytime we introduce um, kavana, concentration, and intent to our mitzvot, you're adding the most integral part of the mitzvah. You're adding the soul to the mitzvah, and that gives the mitzvah life. Otherwise, it's just an empty goof. You get credit, but it's not alive. It doesn't have the, the vibrancy of a mitzvah. And that's what David Melech did. David Melech, his kavanah does not go for wasted. Somebody might say, poor guy, his whole life is praying for the Beit HaMikdash, and kaleta, and God said, no, it's not going to happen. Has shalom. David's nichsefa began kaleta actually would ultimately become 
the major ingredient of the Bet HaMikdash, the, the soul of the temple. I'll give you a, a, another a true example to this concept. There's a big mahloket amongst the rabbis. I'd like to reconcile it this afternoon so you don't lose any sleep over it. I'm sure it didn't bother you anyway, but nonetheless, I'll bring it to your attention. The third Bet HaMikdash, who's going to build it? So there are pisukim in Tanakh, if you could believe, that says Mashiach is going to come down with builders and it sounds like it's going to be constructed like a regular building. Which goes contrary to what we always believed that the third Beit HaMikdash is going to come down from heaven. So there you go. So now all the rabbis are trying to, to reconcile it. There's a rabbi called Aruch Laner. Aruch Laner in his Dedashot answers based on what we just said. There's two parts of the Beit HaMikdash. There's the structure of the Beit HaMikdash and then there's the soul of the Beit HaMikdash. The structure of the Beit HaMikdash is going to be man-made. It's going to be built by the regular uh, builders. But then when it says that Hashem is going to come down and build the Beit HaMikdash, He's going to add the spiritual element, which is the soul of the Beit HaMikdash, and that's going to be the combination. That's exactly what happened in the first temple as well. In this case, David would introduce his pure intent, and that pure intent doesn't get wasted. Uh, the pure intent, uh, again, we, we don't have a, a, a mechanism or a machine on earth to measure intent. So, you know, we say uh, to a person who had good intent, nice try, you know, nice try, you know, a, a for effort, but that's all we tell them. But in heaven, effort and intent mean something. It becomes tangible. And therefore, David's nechsefa vegam kaletan hasrot Hashem. Now, I'd like to go back. Based on what we asked earlier, why do we say this in Minhat time? I think there's another reason now. Because when a person is in the office all day long and he's running around and now he's involved in the mundane and the, uh, you know, the, the regular, the pedestrian, and now all of a sudden he is able to stop and now go into the Midrash for a couple of minutes or go find a, a, a corner where he's able to connect to God so he expresses to God, God, I've been in this rat race in Manhattan running around, you know, trying to make a buck all day long. And my desire and my will is this moment over here. To come back to the, uh, uh, to the, to, to the courtyard of God. With my heart and soul to do what? To sing the praises. So that's again a good way to start Minha, where we're really telling God, work is an interruption from the service. We have no choice. We got to go to work. But all day long, we can't wait until we're able to cut away from our personal uh, business and come back. And then we say to God, when we make it to the Minha service, I am desiring and yearning for this moment. Now we get to the next pasuk. Gam sipor mats abayit. What does that mean? Even a bird found the house. Well, maybe not in Brooklyn, but he found the house somewhere. Uh, udror, udror is also a type of bird. Ken la. Ken means a, a nest. It has a nest. Now, what are we talking about birds over here? So, Rashi comes along and says, David HaMelech is saying, look what happened to our temple. The Beit HaMikdash, which was the glory house of God, turned into one big bird's nest. What happened after the destruction? The birds came and they settled... The birds found a house. Now they found a place. Because when the temple was around, uh, it, it, it was a very unfriendly place for birds. Uh, no, the animal rights activists, not going to be too happy with what I'm going to say, but the, uh, the, uh, the builders of the Beit HaMikdash did not want the birds to uh, sit on the roof of the Beit HaMikdash and maybe uh, soil it and get it dirty, whatever it is. So they put a mechanism on the roof that was called Kalya Orev. Kalya Orev was a metal uh, piece and it had spikes coming out of it. So therefore it would not be, a, it would be very, a very inhospitable place for birds to rest. So when the Beit HaMikdash was around, the birds did not find the bayit. 
But now after the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, David HaMelech says, Gam Sipur Masabayit. The birds unfortunately now found... Uh, 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 oh, oh, oh. So, so, so exactly, I'm going to show you exactly what these birds by the Kotel mean. It means something. I'm telling you right now. Then she quotes the Midrash. Uh, okay, then the Midrash, Midrash. But I found from a rabbi <coughs> over here that is called the Sefer Kodromemot El on Tehilim. And he says like this. It seems that there were certain birds that would fly over the Mizbeah in order that their eggs should land on the Mizbeah. Says the rabbi, that means in the creation, the birds had natural tendencies to want to get close to Kadosh Baruch Hu. Even though they don't have intellect, but the natural tendency drew these birds to want to fly over the open temple in order that their chicks should fall next to the Mizbeah. I'll quote you the words of the Rav. Wants us to learn from the animals. He put a natural tendency always wants to come close to the Mizbeah in order to give birth to its chicks. Shama because it has a desire liyot nishhatim ifrim l'shamai because it wants its chicks to be on the mizbeah. So what, what, what the pasuk is saying over here is that David Melik is saying if the birds desire to be, so certainly I'm a human being, I shouldn't have less craving or will for the uh, to, towards the Beit Hamikdash. So that's the way. Gam sipor mas kenla, and that's David Melik saying we can learn from these. And that's why the birds fly by the kotel. The birds that are flying by the kotel indicates to us that they sense there's something in this spot. And therefore they want to be close. And therefore when you see the birds by the kotel, you're supposed to say to yourself, if the birds feel it, and they sense to hover in that spot, then all the more so we that have sechel certainly should have a desire and a will to be close. Now, I don't know if you have your daily books open in my book, at least, I have the letter Kof of Ken, a big Kof. Do you see it? No, uh, You see that? You got gypped. You really got gypped. My, 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 the Kof is big. And there's a reason why it's big. That's not a mistake in the typesetting. The question is, why is the Kof uh, elongated? So here, I will introduce to you the opinion of Rabbeinu Bahya. Sometimes the kof is big, and sometimes the kof is small. There's a pasuk at the end of, I don't know, Parashat Toledot, when Rivka shows her uh, dismay with Esav's wives. Esav had these creepy wives, these Kenani girls that were bringing Abu Dazara, they were making uh, smoke... Uh, you know, uh, 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 incense and stuff like that. And it, it bothered Rivka to no avail. And she says, Katsti behayai. I am, I am fed up. Katsti behayai. I can't take it anymore. Uh, and this is not just a mother-in-law, you know, daughter-in-law thing, which is common. She was fed up with them because they were really, you know, terrible girls. They were, Katsti behayai me now the katsti, the kof over there is written small. So there's a small kof by katsti, and there's a big kof by this kan or kenla. What is the secret of the small kof and the big kof? So the Benu Bahia writes, Shira'atar Rivka Ruach HaKodesh. Rivka saw in Ruach HaKodesh, she was a prophet, so she's able to see Futuristic events. She saw the temple is going to be destroyed. Now, if anybody knows the dimensions of the Beit HaMikdash, it was a hundred Amah long. A hundred Amah, just for a perspective, is about 200 feet. So it's a big 
long structure. And the letter in the Hebrew alphabet for 100 is a kof. And in her situation, she saw that the kof is going to be diminished. The kof is going to be minimized, destroyed. Why? So he says, because she'avon she'yitchatenu Yisrael bebenot ha'aris. That the Jewish people are going to follow Esav and intermarry. And they're going to marry the wrong girls. And therefore, when she saw Esav marrying the wrong girl, she didn't stop by Esav. She looked in the future Rama and she saw that assimilation is going to be rampant in the future generations. And as a result, the kof, the hundred amma of the Beta Megdash is going to be minimized. Katsti behayai, kof ketana. Now he says, what's the kof rabati, the big kof in chapter Tehilim? David prepared the gold and the silver for the Binyan Beit HaMikdash. And he was praying for the construction. Which means David knew already the dimensions of the Beit HaMikdash. He knew what Beruah HaKodesh. So since this chapter is talking about David's prayer to build the Beit HaMikdash, so the pasuk comes along and gives us a big cough, hinting to us the dimension of the Beit HaMikdash, which is 100 Amah, that David was trying to, uh, uh, to ultimately build, but was unable to build it for good reason, as we mentioned. Now we continue. The next pasuk is a famous pasuk. You all should have heard of it. Ashrei Yosheme Betecha, Od Selah. Now, ladies, just for uh, 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 clarification purposes, this is not the chapter of Ashrei. Uh, how should I tell you this? If you have your Tehillim books, go to the end of your Tehillim, exactly, and go to chapter 145. hope that doesn't take the remainder of the class to find chapter 145. But if you see it, it starts off, David. So this is really the chapter that we call Ashrei, but it doesn't start off with Ashrei. It starts off with the words Tehilal David. We borrow a pasuk from this chapter, and we cut and paste and attach it to chapter Kuf Memhe. So Ashrei Yoshve Betecha, Odelu Chasela. That's from chapter Pedalet. Ashrei Ha'am Shekachalo, Ashrei Ha'am Shekachalo, it's from a different chapter. So we, exactly, so we import two other pesukim from wherever we're importing it, and we add it to chapter 145, and then we start Teirah David. So this pasuk is the actually opening verse of Ashrei. Now that we did that business, what does it mean? Ashrei Yosheve Betecha. Fortunate are those that sit in your house. What is God's house? The Bet Knesset or the Bet Midrash. If you find yourself sitting in the Bet Knesset or the Bet Midrash, or by extension, Rebetzin, the well, which is a form of a Bet Midrash, if you find yourself sitting in a place like this, consider yourself lucky. Because that is considered a panacea. That's considered the ultimate place where a person could find himself. And the Torah predicts, Od Yehalelu this is a big prediction. There's a question. How do we know that there is resurrection of the dead? Big question. Everybody says, yeah, do we have a proof that the dead will be resurrected? This pasuk is one of the proofs. Because the pasuk says, fortunate are those that sit in your house. Odd, in the future, they will continue to praise you. Od Yalucha is future. The Pasuk should say, fortunate that those who are in your house, they praise you. It doesn't say they praise you, it says they will praise you. That means those people in their lifetimes that frequented the Beit Midrash and sat in the yeshiva and studied Torah and prayed, God is saying they will come back one day. Od, Od meaning in the future, Yalucha Sela, and they will praise you. That is the uh, Gemara. That comes along and says, Mikan letayat tametim mena Torah. This is a, a, a proof 
ותראה את המתים פעם לתורה. השתי יושבי ביתך, עוד יעלו חסר. נקסט פסוק. אשרי אדם עוז לא בך. פורצ'נר איזה פרסון עוז לא בך. That puts his faith and trust in God. Misilot bilbabam. And as a result, he directs his heart to the straight way. I will now say a big chedush that I heard from my rabbis when I was young to explain this pasuk. And I'm going to say it uh, in the following way. Yaakov Abinu, it says, leaves his father's house. In the parashat, it said, Vayetzei Yaakov. Yaakov left. Rashi's bothered. Why do you have to tell me he left? Just tell me he got to Haran. Why do you have to tell me he left? If I say I went to Deal, you don't have to say he left Brooklyn and went to Deal. We know where you're living. He lived there for 63 years. He's in Be'er Sheba. Why does the person have to say Vayetzei? Rashi tells us a Hiddush. When a tzaddik leaves a place, he leaves a vacuum. The tzaddik is living in a place, he's the light and the splendor and the glory of a place. When he leaves, it's not the same city. Something happens. I asked a question on this Rashi. Is Yaakov the first tzaddik to ever leave a city? No. No, Abraham left. So why did Rashi make this comment when Abraham left? It should say, Lech lecha me'artzecha. Rashi should come along and say, oh, when Abraham left, uh, vacuum. He doesn't say it. He only mentions it by Yaakov. When he left, oh, he was a big leaving. Something left with him, the glory and the splendor and the, and, 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 and the aura. You know why he didn't say it by Abraham? Because by Abraham, it was obvious. Abraham was an outgoing man. Abraham, Alav Shalom and Sarah, they were making parties in the house all day long. Hesed. They were doing outreach. They were giving classes. So when they left, it was obvious something was missing in the town. That's it. No more, no more, no more Malava Malkas. It's over. But when Yaakov left, it wasn't so obvious. Because where was Yaakov all day long? He was in the tent. Now how many tents can you sit in at the same time? But it says he was sitting in two tents. There were two yeshivas in his time. One was called Yeshivat Shem and one was called Yeshivat Ever. There were two different yeshivas. And he went to both. He was a graduate of both. Now, he wasn't such a famous man, Yaakov. He was a very private man learning in the yeshiva. So you might not have thought that when Yaakov left, that he left an impact because nobody even knew when he was there. So you might have said, you know, <laughs> Yaakov Abinu left. Okay, he left. Guess what? We didn't even know he was living in the first place that he left. So that's what she has to go out of his way and say, no, even a tzaddik that's learning private has an influence on the city. With this, I want to explain the pasuk. There's a big argument that some people have against our rabbis. Uh, not against me, but against some of the rabbis. And I defend the rabbis, of course. The claim is, you have some of these young scholars in the community, they sit and learn all day long. They're in the Bet Midrash, they're reading, and studying, and, and they don't teach, and they don't outreach, and they don't you know, have any uh, big uh, uh, imprint on the community. They mind their own business. And they come along and they have claims against these guys and say, well, what are you doing? You're learning for yourself. Either go to work or become a, uh, a teacher. You're not benefiting anybody by just sitting by a book all day long and studying for yourself. Are they right? No, they're not right. They're wrong. And I'll tell you why. There's two ways we can influence. One is the way I'm doing, which is the obvious. I'm talking to you. I'm trying to change your brains. I'm trying to get you to think in a Torah manner. I'm, I'm in the trenches over here. I'm trying to uh, hope I'm succeeding to a certain degree. I don't know. But then there's another way, which is an indirect way. When the tzaddik just sits in his room and learns, he creates Torah in the environment. He's pumping Kedushah into the world. The world becomes better because somebody is learning. 
even if it doesn't open the windows. Don't worry, the, the Kiddushah will seep out through the vents somehow. You don't have to worry about that. That's God's business. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanta said it to such a degree that it's possible because somebody who's doing a mitzvah in New York can influence a Jew in Paris to keep Shabbat. What do you mean? The guy in New York doesn't even speak French. He's not even in Paris. But his mitzvot that he's doing in New York creates spiritual energy in the world. And who knows if that energy would have an influence even to a Jew on the other part of the world. So you don't only always have to be in front of people pontificating, preaching, sermonizing. Of course, in our generation, I think it's very important to do that. Uh, 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 you know, today it's triage, all, all hands on deck. Uh, the, the, the souls need to be saved, save our souls. But not everybody's meant for that. Some people just have the craving to sit in the Bit Midrash and learn. I will tell you, they are also changing people. And when they go up to Shamayim, God will tell those rabbis that were sitting in Bet Midrash, Hazak Baruch, look how many people you brought back to Teshuvah. I didn't bring anybody back. I never talked to anybody. I just sat in the tent all day long. But your positive spiritual energy influenced all these other people to have an idea to eat kosher, to go to mikveh, to follow the laws. It was as a result of your, uh, your learning. So it's possible that you could be a private man and keep the Torah to yourself, but it'll influence others. Now let's read the Pasuk to see how it's, it's, it's true. Read Pasuk Vav. Ashre Adam. Fortunate is the man. Oz lo bach. What does Oz mean? Oz is Torah. Shene'emar Hashem Oz la'amo yitin. Fortunate is a person that keeps the Torah to himself. He's not the outgoing rabbi. He's the Yaakov. That sits in the tent and learns. And you know what his uh, uh, influence is going to be? He's going to pave roads in their hearts. It doesn't say he's going to pave roads in his heart. In the hearts of others. So you see that even a tzaddik that's Oslo Bach, Misilot, Neeman. It's a very important yesod. I'd like to prove it to you from another pasuk in Tehillim that you know. Pasuk says, and we say it every Friday night, Shitulim bebet Adonai, behasrot bet Elohenu yafrihu. It says, Shitulim bebet Hashem, those that are planted in the house of God. Those are the learners, they just sit in the house of God all day long. But you, you want to know where you're going to see the result? In the courtyard of Hashem's Midrash, that's where you're going to see the results. The flourishing is going to happen outside the Bet Midrash as a result of the people that are in the Bet Midrash. And what's that going to cause? In the Hatser, which is on the outside, there's going to be Yafriyo. So that's a, a tremendous, tremendous... So that's what we need to learn this. Anytime somebody's in the yeshiva... Uh, uh, and he's studying Torah, you know that everybody else is better off. Uh, because they're lifting up, they're lifting up the world. I will tell you something, I heard the name of Rabbi Aaron Cutler, I didn't hear it from him directly, but I heard it from the students. Chaimai Shabbat told me this. I know you pray, but I don't think you pray as much as the men do. We pray from the beginning of the book every morning, and at the beginning of the book, there's a Mishnah that says that there's certain things that if a person does in this world, he will reap the dividends in this world and get the principal payment in the next world. There's certain mitzvot, you can get dividends already in this world. You don't have to wait. You can get paid in this world. And then the Mishnah lists a whole list of things. The common denominator between all the things are man to man. Bikor cholim, haknasat orchim, shalom bayit, shalom im habero, all things that are connected to man to man. If you do these mitzvot, you will get dividends in this world. And then it says at the end, Talmud Torah keneged kulam. And the study of Torah is the biggest one. Aaron Cutler said, wait, it doesn't belong. Study of Torah is not between man and man. Study of Torah is between man and God. Why is it in the Mishnah? Said Rav Aaron, because when a person is studying Torah, you're influencing the whole world. And therefore that's the biggest chesed you could do. I, I, I took over the yeshiva now. Uh, maybe you heard about it. So they asked me, uh, Rabbi, the kids have to do chesed hours. 
you know, they got to do bikur holim or whatever it is. They got to do forty hours of uh, of you know giving kids baths or whatever. I don't know what the kids do. The, the kindness, acts of chesed. They go babysit. They do acts of kindness. So uh, they came to me and they said, "Well, could you make a list of certain things that qualify for for chesed?" So I said, "Okay, babysitting, bikur holim, uh, feeding the poor, whatever the list was." And at the end, I said, "And going to the bet midrash at night, learning." So the board came to me and said, what is this over here? We're learning. This is not a chesed over here. This is learning. Don't stick in the... I go, oh, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. Before you get all uh, uh, feisty with me, that is the biggest chesed, by the way. My opinion is if the kid goes to learning, she get triple chesed hours. Because here you're doing not a chesed with a kid in the bathtub. You're doing a chesed with the whole entire world. By, by learning Torah, you're pumping Kiddushah into the world. And therefore, it is the ultimate chesed. Uh, 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 of course they bought. They had no choice to buy it. <laughs> so I'll quit. Okay. No, don't quit. So now, so now, and that's what it's saying over here. Ashre Adam Ozlobach. Fortunate is a person that has the Torah to himself. Mesilot bin Bavam. He makes inroads not only on his own heart, but he makes inroads on the hearts of, of others. Next one. It's a beautiful, beautiful basuk. Ovre be'eme kabacha. All right, ladies, I'm sorry, but I have to explain these pesukim, whatever comes my way. This pasuk over here is talking about uh, those that transgress Judaism. They're transgressors. Sorry to ruin your day. But they end up in a place called Gehinam. I know we're not supposed to talk about that in public, and we're supposed to just keep everybody oblivious that there's Gehinam, and we're just supposed to tell our people, don't worry, Gan Eden, Olam but what about Gehinam? Ah, don't worry about that. But that she's telling us that there are some people that merit because of their misdeeds, and they go to what's called Emek HaBacha, the Valley of Bacha. Bacha comes from Lashon to Bocheh, the valley of crying, the valley of, of tears. Ma'yan yeshituhu. And the tears are like a ma'yan. What is a ma'yan? A wellspring. Meaning the tears are going to be incessant. However, even the rasha in Gehinam, gam berachot ya'ateh moreh. They come along and they bless the moreh. Who's the moreh? The teacher. God. In, in Gehinam, they don't come along and say, ah, what are you doing to me over here? I don't deserve this. They're going to come along and say, Bore Olam, you were right. Blessings to God. Whatever I'm getting is I deserved it. I earned it because of my misdeeds. Even the Rasha in Gehinam is going to come to an admission that Hashem is right. Read Rashi. Berachot mevarchim umodim lishmo. They bless and they praise his name. You judged us correctly. Not only that, they're going to bless the rabbi. The rabbi is the more. In Olamaze, what happens? They, they, they yell at the rabbi. Don't tell us what to do. Who do you think you are? Keep, keep your, uh, the business to yourself. You're going to come preach to us. The, the people get nervous from the rabbi that tries to bring them back to Teshuvah. Don't talk to my children. Don't brainwash them. Don't do anything to them. Everybody gets uh, uh, uptight. So they're not giving the moreh uh, any credit in this world. But when they get to Olam and they start to see the truth, you know what they say in Gehinam? The rabbi was right. Gam berachot ya'atem moreh. They give berachot to the moreh. My seventh grade teacher that told me, an eighth grade teacher, the moreh that told me in, the, in, the, in yeshiva, they were right. And that's a, that's a very... But, but again, in this world, nobody wants to hear any Musa. There was a rabbi that got a job. A young guy got a job in the synagogue. And he was a passionate guy and he wanted to make a difference. And he got up the first week in front of a filled crowd, capacity, men and women. And he says, Rabotai, Shabbat. You must keep the Shabbat. And if you don't keep the Shabbat, Hasbash Shalom is punishable by Sikilah. And he gave a whole fine brimstone speech. And the committee came to me after and they said, what are you talking about here? We don't talk about Shabbat in public like that over there. Many of our members are traditional, you know, they keep whatever they keep. 
you know, you, you're going you're gonna to offend people if you talk like this. About, I'm talking about Shabbat. You can't talk about Shabbat from the pulpit. What do you think this is over here? All right, he was a naive guy. The next week he gets up, Kashrut, and you can't eat out, and you got to keep Halab Yisrael, and Yashan, and he gave no, uh, you read him the riot act. And you see the committee like this, what is this guy doing over here? Our people are regular, they like to travel, they like to enjoy. Halab yeah, Stam, not Halab Stam, yeah, eating and fish, and so on and so forth. You can't say this in public, Rabbi, yeah, Kashrut. Says, okay, how am I supposed to know? I mean, it's one of the fundamentals of the Torah. The third week he says, okay, if I can't talk about Kashrut and I can't talk about Shabbat, Tarat HaMishpacha. And he starts with the Mikveh, making them. And you see the men, what is he talking about, this guy? What is he talking about? We travel, we go, Bedikot, and Akirot, all this stuff over here. What are you talking about? And they came to the rabbi after they said, listen, rabbi, you can't talk about this in public. We don't want to hear about this stuff. So the rabbi finally lost the school. He said, I can't talk about Shabbat, and I can't talk about Kashrut, and I can't talk about family purity. What do you want me to talk about? So the president says, talk about Judaism. <laughs> what Judaism? What, 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 is the, what does the president of the congregation know about Judaism? Talk about Israel, talk about Gaza, you know, talk about Jewish stuff, the Holocaust, and talk about stuff that will not change anybody. That's what he means to say. Just talk about maybe Jewish people in the news, uh, talk about their holidays in a nice way, make everybody feel good, but don't get into the guts, don't get into the personal lives over there trying to uh, change them. They're getting offended. So all those people gave the rabbi a hard time. But when the uh, 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 proletarian goes to Olam Abba and they find themselves in a, uh, 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 the wrong place, then they're going to say, The rabbi was right. It's good he spoke about it. We're wrong for not listening and not giving him a chance to talk about it. But it's right that he talked. There was one member of our community, Mr. Al-Gindi, Shalom. I'd merit to be close to, to to some of these good people, and I was close to him as well. He was a he was a prize of our community. He was a treasure, and uh, Mr. Gindi Alav Shalom told me on many occasions. He said, Rabbi Mansoor, you have a difficult job. He says because you have to tell the people what they're doing wrong, and nobody wants to hear it. He says, but you have to be like a doctor. He says when somebody goes to the doctor. The doctor has to be honest with the patient, even if he has to tell the patient things not going to want to hear. Now imagine a doctor sugarcoats, and the patient is, is dying, and the doctor says, ah, you'll be okay, nothing to worry about. One day when the patient realizes how much trouble he's going to resent the doctor, how come you didn't tell me? I would have taken medicine. I, would have I didn't want to offend you. What should I tell you? He says, don't fall into that trap. He says, you're a spiritual doctor, and therefore, of course you have to do it, but you have to tell the people uh, uh, what's right and wrong in order for their benefit in order that you can give them not only the fu'at goof, but you want to give them the fu'at nefesh, a healing of the soul. Anyway, that's the pasuk uh, referring to those in Gehinam are going to bless God. Yelchu mechayil l'chayil, l'elohim mesiyon. You ever hear the saying, mechayil l'chayil? Well, now you heard it. Mechayil l'chayil means from strength to strength. And the Gemara learns from this pasuk over here, Certain people are going to merit to bask in the presence of God. Who are these people? The people that go from strength to strength. Who are these people? So the Gemara says, maybe you saw a person in the morning, you see him go to shul. And after he goes to shul, he has a little breakfast, and then he takes a Gemara in his arm, and he goes to the Beit Midrash. So he goes, Mechayil el Chayil. From strength to strength. He goes from one mitzvah to the bit Knesset to the bit Midrash. When God sees that uh, 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 synergy between bit Knesset and bit Midrash, that arouses God tremendous mercy, and therefore those people will merit to see Shekhinah. And that's not limited to bit Knesset to bit Midrash. It means anytime you do mitzvot back to back, uh, a lady comes to the well to study Torah. And then after that, by the way, she goes to do Bikur Hodim, or she goes to do a... So therefore God says, ah, back to back. Mechayil, oh, something you did before. Mechayil ilhayil. When there's mitzvot that are done in, uh, in consecutive pattern, that uh, causes uh, the person to merit to see the Shekhinah. Now let's go, because again, it's hard to, to read everything, but I want to read two more pesukim, if I may. Go to pasuk 11 and 12. This is God now talking to King David. 
כי טוב יום בחסריך, one of your days is better for me מאלף או מאלף, from a thousand. הסתופף בבית אלוהי, by you hovering and staying in my house. What is this talking about? In order to understand this pasuk, I refer to you to an amazing Gemara. The Gemara says, David HaMelech Alav HaShalom was curious when he's going to die. Okay, he's curious. So he asked God, when am I going to die? And God says, sorry, we can't give that information out. It's, 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 you know, we don't disclose that stuff. So David HaMelech then asked God, could you tell me the day of the week that I'm going to die? So he said, that we can tell you. You're going to die on a Shabbat. Well, so what happened? David HaMelech says, I'm going to die on Shabbat. Now we pick up the Gemara. Amut be'echad be'Shabbat. He said, let me die on Sunday. He wanted to extend it, you know, die one day later. Because he knew if he dies on Shabbat, the Havra Kaddishah can't take care of his body. So therefore, it's a, it's a complicated situation. So therefore, he said, let me die one day later. It's the time for King Solomon to take over. And once it's his time, you can't have two kings living in the world at the same time. Therefore, you got to go so King Solomon can take over. So then he says, Shabbat. So let me die on Friday. Again, David knows it's easier for the Hebrew Kanishat to be buried on Friday, especially the Mekubadim say if you're buried on Friday, it's a big thing. So he said, okay. And imagine that he was willing to die a day early. He doesn't want to die on Shabbat. Let me die on Friday. So listen to what God says. Die on Friday? A day early? That means I'm going to miss one of your days. You're going to die one day early. I'm going to miss a day in the life of King David. And you know what a day in the life of King David is? Learning Torah from morning to night. Even though if you die one day early, King Solomon will build the Beit HaMikdash one day earlier, and King Solomon is going to bring 1,000 sacrifices on the inauguration day. God says to David, your one day of learning is more important to me than the thousand sacrifices that King, that King Solomon, your son, will bring on inauguration day. And therefore, I will not take you away one day early. You're depriving me from the greatest pleasure in the world. One day in the courtyard of God, from a thousand baharti. I chose it over a thousand of Shalomor. From here you see, ladies, how precious is it to God even one day of study of Torah. When a person, especially on Shabbat, because that was the extra day that he got. The Benish Hai says when you study on Shabbat, it's actually for every hour you study, it's a thousand hours. One day I'll prove it to you. I'm not exaggerating. If you study an hour of Torah on Shabbat, it's like you studied a thousand hours. It's not an exaggeration. Uh, two hours would be two thousand. It's just simple math. Especially for women. So now you have over here... A class is studying Torah? 100%. This is it. This is exactly what we're doing over here. If we were doing this on Shabbat, you wouldn't get credit for an hour. You'd get credit for a thousand hours. So Because we're doing it during the week, so you got uh, one hour, which is also good. But come to Shul on Shabbat. We'll give you a thousand hours. Don't tell the kids of Magad David that. Now they're going to want a thousand hours for learning on Shabbat. For chesed. They're going to they're 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 finish all their chesed hours in one, uh, in one class. Then they're going to be out of business. But the point is... So that's the first Hadush of this Pasuk. Now look at the next Pasuk. Ki shemesh umagen Adonai Elohim hen vechavod yeten Adonai Elohim na tov laolechim betamim. Words. Ki shemesh. What is shemesh? Beautiful. What is magen? Beautiful. So far so good. So we're talking about a shemesh and a magen. Okay, a sun and a shield. I guess uh, that's uh, what we'd call today sunblock. No, I'm just kidding. Kishemesh umagen. Hashem Elohim. Now we have two names of God. Very good. Shemesh umagen. Hashem Elohim. In conclusion of today's dirash, I introduce to you something that's very, very, very significant. 
That's as, as a life lesson. There's two names of Hashem. One is Yudke Vavke. That's the explicit name of Hashem. That's the real name of Hashem. That's the, uh, 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 the main name that we use, Yudke Vavke, Hashem's name. That's the name of God of revelation. Uh, that's, that name of God is used when God is apparent to everybody. When you see an open miracle, you'll always see the name Yudke Vavke. It's, 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 it's without a doubt. Hashem did it. Splitting of the sea. It's God. It, it's undeniable. It's incontestable. But there's another name of Hashem. It's called Elohim. Elohim is God behind the curtain. That's the name of God that is used when he's introducing to the world natural order. You see, the world follows natural order, by the way. There is a thing called the science book. And the science can predict certain things. They can tell you when the next eclipse is going to happen. And when you start to look at the world from natural uh, perspective... It, it, it removes God from the picture because you're just saying it's on a, it's on a, uh, it's on a uh, timer. It's on a, uh, you know, automatic cycle. And therefore you really don't have God too much in it. It's just on its own. Sunrise, sunset. Uh, uh, you have, uh, uh, they can tell you when high tide is going to be. They can tell you when low tide is going to be. They can predict all sorts of things before they ever happen because the world has a certain cycle that it follows. And whenever you fall into that, you could come to the mistake like many scientists do where you say, uh, this is uh, Mother Nature. You ever hear say Mother Nature? Mother Nature is a fictitious character like Mother Goose. Uh, it doesn't exist. Because they, they can't say God. So you ever, ever, ever watch the weather? And you see the weatherman stand there and say, Oh, Mother Nature is going to give us a big storm tomorrow. Now what they really mean is God. But they can't say God because it's not, it's not a, you know, a missionary channel. You're watching the weather. So they're not, they're not allowed to say God. So they had to replace it with all sorts of fictitious words. Mother Nature, or, you know, a, a, a front, a, a cloud covering, all, all words that are beating around the bush instead of saying Hashem. And then you could fall into the trap when they predict, although they're terrible at predicting these forecasters, these are the false prophets of our generation, but you know, when they do predict something, it's kind of amazing because it's a beautiful sunny day outside and they tell you at 4 o'clock it's going to start... Story. What are you talking about, the guy? It's beautiful sunny. And it was at 4 o'clock. Like, How do you know? How do you know? So, no, we have Doppler radar, we have mechanisms, we have systems. And you could fall into the trap to think that this is nature. Now listen to what I'm going to tell you. When Hashem created the world... Initially, he created it using the name Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim. What was the intention? I'm going to create it in a natural way, and I'm going to hide behind it, and uh, the people have to find me. God was not going to make himself so revealed. It was Elohim. And the numerical value of Elohim is 86, and the word for nature is Hateva, which also equals 86. That was the way God initially created the world. He was hiding behind the natural order. But then he said, if I hide too much, they're not going to find me. So he added the name Yudke Vavke to the creation. Later on in Bereshit, it says, Beyom Bero Hashem Elohim Shamayim Va'aris. He added Hashem. That's very important. By adding Hashem to Elohim, that um, uh, it, it, it lends itself to us easier to find him. It's easier for us to connect. So that ingredient of Yud Kevavke makes it more apparent. So far, so good? Now I'm going to read you. I'm not talking about that now. I, I, we are talking about, you want me to talk about that? I, I'll, I'll talk about it for a minute. Okay, no problem. Uh, You're switching the whole thing right? No, 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 I'm, I'm switching it. No, 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 I'm switching it, but I'm not switching it. Elohim is natural order, and Yud Kevavke is the apparency of God. When a person falls into thinking that the world is in natural order, that arouses judgment. That's why Elohim is a judgment name, because people make the mistake to think that uh, Mother Nature. Yud Kebabke is mercy, because that's the realization that everything is from Hashem. 
Now, you're really supposed to combine the two. And the combination is to say that that which seems as Elohim really has God behind it and he is controlling it. That's what we mean to say, Hashem hu ha-Elohim. Actually, it's the Yudke Babke that is driving the Elohim. The nature is being actually driven, but God is behind it. He doesn't show himself uh, for good reason. If God would be in front, you would have no free will. If you would see everything God apparent, you'd be sitting in the well all day long taking classes and you wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't have any other options to do anything else. What, what allows you to have free will to, to choose? Because uh, it's not apparent. When Mashiach comes, the Yud Kebabka is going to come in front. And that's it. The, the, the Elohim is going to be behind. Now Elohim is in front and the Yud Kebabka is behind. Am I being? Yeah. Okay, good. Now I want to tell you something else. Then I'm going to let you go. The numerical value of Elohim is 86. The numerical value of Yud Kevavke is 26. Right? Yud Kevavke is 26. There's no blackboard here. You know the two letters in the Hebrew alphabet that represent 26? Chafav. You see Chafav? Chafav is 26. That's Yud Kevavke. But I'm going to show you that in the letters Chafav, there's also Elohim. There's also an 86. I could make from the letters Chav Vav to equal 86. Houdini can't do that, but I'm going to do it. Chav Vav, which is 26, I can make it equal 86. How do you spell the letter Chav? Phonetically. Chav Peh. Chav, like it sounds, Chav. So the second letter is a Peh. Chav Peh, Chav. The hidden letter in the word chaf is a peh. How do you spell the letter vav? Two vavs. Two vavs. So the hidden letter in vav is the second vav. So the hidden letters in chaf vav is peh vav. Peh vav is 86, which is Elohim. That means there's a, a natural combination between Hashem and Elohim. Now let's go back to our pasuk. The sun, Shebesh, that represents the apparent Yud Kebabke, because the sun is something that you see clear. There's no, there's no question. The Shemesh represents revelation, something that is obvious. But then you have the Magen. The Magen is something that covers the sun. That represents that you don't see the clarity of the Shemesh. There's a Magen. That's Elohim. Odpam. Shemesh Yudke Vavke Magen Elohim. So the Pasuk is saying, Ki Shemesh Umagen. The relationship between Shemesh Umagen is the same relationship between Hashem and Elohim. You see how we're we studying? And now I just read inside so you can hear it. V'amru Hazal. Ki shemesh u'magen. Havaya Elohim. Shashem Elohim, the name Elohim, hainu kemo magen v'nartik. It's like a shell around the sun. Diyudke vavke. Shuki dugmat shemesh. Because the teva, the nature covers up Hashem. Where you can come to think, hey, it's, it's, it's happening by itself. It covers up the, the real thing. And therefore the job of the Jew is to penetrate through the magen to see the shemesh. But most people fall for the magen. They say, where's God? And they, and they fall for the doctor. When the doctor comes along and says, well, uh, you have six months to live. Uh, what do you know? How much? Oh, you're not God. What do you know from how long? One time a guy went to the doctor and the doctor said, you have six months to live and he was all upset and he went to his rabbi and the rabbi said, what are you, what are you so upset about? He said, the doctor says, I have six months to live. He says, you're lucky. I don't know if I'm going to live till tomorrow. You have six months. <laughs> what, 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 what are you upset about? What does he know? What, what does he know? And therefore, but you fall into the uh, statistics and, uh, and all this stuff over there. That's that's teva. That's teva. We know statistics. That ship could do anything. And I'll conclude. When you start to believe that Hashem runs the world, and you start to see everything else is... I recently heard a story. You have to know we don't run by Teva. 
it's, it's, it's a smoke screen. It's the magen. It's the magen that covers the shemesh. One day I'll explain to you. Remember when Abraham Abinu on the third day of the Brit Milah, it says God made it a very hot day. It says, Hotzi Hamam in Nartika. God took the sun out of its shell. It has to do with this. On that day, the revelation of Yud Kevavke became very apparent. Because naturally speaking, a 100-year-old man, a 90-year-old man, and a 90-year-old lady cannot have children. If you ask all the, uh, what do you call it, the fertility specialists, and I said, you're over the hill. It's not like you can't have children. But maybe you can give me in vitro. Nothing, you can't do nothing. Between you, you're 190 years old. There's no science for a 190-year-old couple to have that many children. And therefore, on that day, God took the, uh, uh, the, the shell from the sun and the angels came and told Abraham, you're going to have a child. And there was a great revelation of the Yud Kevavke on that day. Understand how we're learning? Hotzi hamam and nartika doesn't mean it was a hot day. It was a hot day, but that's not what it means. Hotzi hamam and nartika. God took the magen off the sun and if it was revealed on that day, a 190-year-old couple's going to have a baby? It's only from God. So recently I heard a story. There was a great tzaddik called the tzaddik from Ra'anana. Maybe you heard of him. He passed away, but he was a great tzaddik. I don't, never saw him. I wish I did. And a lady came to him in, a ninth, in his ninth month. And uh, she said, Rabbi, uh, the doctors want to induce. I have twins. Having twins and doctors want to induce. What do you think? He says, Listen, I can't answer that question. But come back on Friday. Why Friday? Friday I have a bris. And I'm sitting sandak. And Eliyahu Nabi comes to the bris. I'll ask Eliyahu Nabi. Ask Eliyahu Nabi. Okay, Rabbi talks to Eliyahu Nabi. Anyway, the lady comes back on Friday. He says, I spoke to Eliyahu Nabi. Don't induce. You're going to give birth naturally. And it's not twins. You have triplets. Oh, no way. What are you talking about? So she goes back to the doctor. The doctor says, I spoke to my rabbi. He doesn't want me to induce. And he says, there's triplets. He says, your rabbi doesn't know what he's talking about. What is he drinking? We did the sonogram. I'm just telling you. Sure enough, she gave birth a little later that day. Triplets. The doctor went crazy. There was a baby hiding behind. Who knows what? She gave birth to triplets. How did they... So they, they don't know. Ultimately, Hashem Elohim. It's okay to, to recognize that there's Elohim, but you have to know that Hashem is behind all these things. And when it comes to Yudke Matke, anything can happen. And that's the lesson that we're learning over here. Okay, we'll stop over here.